and welcome to Wonderstruck. I am your host, Elizabeth Rovier. I'm a clinical psychologist, a yoga teacher, and a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. I'm really curious about experiences of wonder and awe and how they transform us. My guest on this episode is Dr. Keltner. He's a groundbreaking scientist, a psychology professor, and is the founding director of the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California at Berkeley. He's also the host of the Science of Happiness podcast and a best-selling author. In fact, it's Docker's newest book that brings him here today. His book is called Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And this book provides compelling evidence backed by fieldwork, cultural survey, and autobiography about the many benefits of pursuing, encountering, and embracing awe as an emotion and as a regularly occurring experience that we all have access to. Docker also argues that this awe is truly critical to the future of social reform, urban planning, and education. But our conversation starts with Docker himself and with what motivates him to connect others to an emotion that is so deeply personal to him. From his formative years to the more recent loss of his brother, Docker has always turned to awe as an anchoring force and as a source of support. What I was really thinking when I wrote the book is I wanted to, in some sense, make people experience awe, you know, just because mm -hmm. it's such a tricky phenomena to pin down uh, and to study. So I, I really thought, you know, I wanted to them to kind of inquire into their own lives and think about where they find awe. So I loved reading it. It was a great pleasure to read your book. And one of the things, as you're saying that, I'm really curious about is that, you know, perhaps as early as humans have existed, we've been thinking about awe or having had that experience, yeah. right? Yeah. My question to you is that generally it seems like it gets pushed into like religious, spiritual, maybe psychedelics. And your work in this way is bringing it into the general public. And I'm just curious, like, you know, why, why do you think that is that we've sort of neglected it in this way or pushed it into the realm of only the religions? Yeah. I mean, I think that, it, and if I was a different kind of scholar, I would have written a really a deep history of awe. And I think that'd be really interesting because I think, you know, when you consult the indigenous traditions, awe is about so many different things. It's about, you know, tides and the sun and the wind and other people and basketry and patterns. And then it really gets narrow, you know, with the birth of the big God religions in particular, and up and probably until the age of enlightenment, where it really, at least with respect to the written record, feels like a religious emotion, you know, in your relationship to the divine. And then it broadens out again, you know, with um, Edmund Burke and Emerson and Margaret Fuller and others. And so I think it got pushed into being a, a religious emotion or narrowed into a religious emotion because it's so powerful. You know, it's, it is a transcendent state. It gets people to do radical things. It transforms them. Uh, it makes them political, right? You know, it makes you want to change the world. And so, you know, religion had good reason to kind of try to contain awe in that way. So for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. You know, all, all the more reason 
as you were saying, that it's evocative of a transcendent state. It was very interesting to read, and you, you quote Vladimir Nabokov, who talks about the shiver between the shoulder blades. You know, like, how do you, how do you even define awe? And that was one of your quotations. And I was wondering, how did you come to your definition? Yeah, you know, emotions are hard to define. And, and in general, in the philosophical ap approaches to emotions and psychology, you, you tend to focus on like, what are they about? Or what philosophers call the intentional object of them. And I defined uh, awe as when the feeling that arises, so it's an emotion. And a lot of people have made that case, like Descartes and others, that this is a state of mind, a, a, an evaluative state of mind, where you are reacting to things that are really vast and big and mysterious that you can't make sense of right away. Um, and uh, that definition really, you know, has deep roots. Edmund Burke thought that, you know, the Irish philosopher thought that the sublime was really about power, like vastness and obscurity. I don't know what this is, like mystery. You know, others have uh, gotten close to that kind of definition as well. And and so, um, you know, grounded in that tradition and then reading a lot of narratives of awe from the spiritual writing, the natural writing, there is like time and time again, you see this kind of like vastness quality to it. Wow, things are so big. And then I can't make sense of this. And so we arrived, I arrived at the definition of really awe being about vast mysteries. Mm -hmm. I just want to articulate it for the audience that is defined as awe is the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. And uh, what a beautiful experience that is. It is. And I, you know, when, when I was reading this, and it's like this, this highest form of emotion, or the most, as you in your research, you discovered the most universally recognized sound yeah. of an emotion. Oh, I know. I mean, this is, that's really profound. I mean, I have to tell you, I had shivers throughout reading your book. I was like, oh, wow, look at that. That's amazing. Mm. So, and that was one of them. And um, thank you. Again, it's just, the experience of this and our capacity to have this experience and to bring it into the world in this way, like making recognition of it, it feels very important to me. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so striking because we associate awe with, with, you know, the numinous, you know, what's beyond the human, what's beyond the earth, what is spiritual, our encounters with the divine. And, and this, Elizabeth speaks to your, you know, kind of the historical legacy that you've noted of treating it as a religious emotion. But time and time again, we just get these findings, you know, the sound of awe uh, is just universal, whoa, right? You just hear that everywhere. We did another paper where we coded the faces of people from 144 countries and, you know, just the awe expression and looking in fireworks is just part of the human repertoire. And, and it tells us, and we have other data that speak to this, that this is, one of the most deeply human emotions, one of the most deeply embodied emotions, right? That you can see anywhere independent of religion. So it tells us there's something deep to this, this feeling um, that isn't just about the sublime or the numinous or encountering the divine. It's just about how humans relate to the world. So I'm glad you were struck by that finding. Yeah, no, it was fantastic. And, and it leads me to ask you, what about you? I mean, you do talk a little bit in your book about some of your own awe experiences around particularly Rolf. And I'm wondering if that was one of the main impetuses for writing this book. 
Yeah, you know, thanks for asking that. Um, I, I, you know, it was interesting reading and then writing about uh, Rachel Carson's, you know, how to teach your child to wonder and just like let kids wander and don't force ideas on them and let them approach mystery and get dirty and the like. And I had a really awe-based childhood, you know, and a wild childhood. My dad was a painter. You know, he painted us. <laughs> he painted, you know, he loved Goya and the horrors of, of his painting and Francis Bacon. And my mom taught the Romantics, who were great champions of awe, Wordsworth and Blake and Shelley, and, and then later Virginia Woolf and others. So, you know, um, it was uh, awe is a deeply personal emotion to me. And in many ways, it has in, at different times in life just changed how I relate to the world. And then, um, you know, my brother passed and my brother Rolf, I shared all kinds of experiences with him growing up. And he and I went to the rivers together and hiked in the mountains together and went to rock concerts and, you know, uh, down to Mexico, wild trips. And, and he passed. And it, it just was this massive, like grief does, it was this massive reflective exercise of he's gone, what went with him? My capacity for awe, right? Why is that? Wow, I, I grew up in this incredible childhood that he and I shared, and now it's gone. And that was, you know, literally, Elizabeth, I remember about four months after he passed, it was May, and I, I, I went by myself down to Mexico brought all the books that mean a lot to me, Walt Whitman and Lao Tzu and others, Darwin, and just started reading and writing and just out it poured. And it, it started to take shape in this book. Oh, that's really fantastic. I, when I was, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I was reading your book and I was like, oh, look at that with your parents. Like what a, what a phenomenal experience that you would have with the art and the poetry. And, you know, if you're not getting enough of that in the school, you're getting it at home. And it made me wonder, too, because you talk about in your book, Rolf, you experience him now, right, in the, the warmth of the sun or the gentle yeah. breeze. And then you also yeah. have Wordsworth in there in the prelude. And yeah. it talks about the blessing of the gentle breeze. And it made me think yeah. of your experience with your parents and this art, art, very artistic background as a conduit to that connection to Rolf and to awe. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You know, it was... Uh, that's a fascinating observation because when Rolf passed away, my younger brother, Rolf Keltner, 55, you know, I'm a, I study the nervous system. I study evolution. You know, I, I have this, I'm not a agnostic. I don't know what I am vis-a-vis -vis the afterlife and the soul. And I watched him go. And, you know, during my grief, I felt him vividly and I heard him. I felt his hand on my back twice where I literally had the sensations of him patting me on the back. So I felt him present. And of course, science really can't, you know, the kind of science that I do, maybe if I did quantum physics, I could make sense of it. But I was just like, what? And, and it was the arts that got me to a new understanding. And that's what awe does. It generates wonder and curiosity and mystery and makes advances your knowledge. And it was words worth hiking in the mountains, there is a blessing in this gentle breeze, which starts the prelude and, and his radiances. And, and it was returning to certain painters that my dad got me interested in. And then new experiences with music and art, you know, uh, with the symphony in Philadelphia and Yumi Kendall, the cellist there. I was like, oh, 
there's there's more to experience than cells and neurons, which is what I used to believe. There is transcendent stuff that allows me to be in relation to my brother. So art and music got me there and and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, and I mean what a what a gift that that is. Yeah. You know, I I think about that a lot. You know, I'm I'm a student of Lacan as as well and Lacan is by no means <laughs> particularly spiritual. But Lacan talks about the real and about arts and the arts as a conduit to the real, which, of mm. course, I'm always like, isn't he a mystic? He's a mystic. But it does make me wonder, and as, as you talk about in your book, about awe deprivation and how yeah, yeah. in our world and in the schools we, we cut art and music. And it's, what, a, what, a, what a shame it is, what we're missing out on in this way. It's outrageous, you know. I raised two daughters through, you know, and they did well. They graduated from UC Berkeley and upstanding citizens. But I, you know, I just saw, and I teach, you know, hundreds of 20-year-olds a year at Berkeley. And uh, the single, um, the this, this single kind of summary statement that I would make is that our, our system is, is knocking out their capacity to wander and wonder and feel awe. You know, it's so tightly constrained and test focused and, uh, you know, driven towards uh, not mystery or question, but, you know, definitive answer. Uh, and then, like you said, you know, the siloing of the humanities and the, you know, the rise of big data and so forth. These students, uh, our young people have not had the chance to do what young people have to do, which is think about mysteries, think about like, why did Hitler kill 6 million people, you know, uh, and just wonder about things. So, uh, we're at work on building all principles for education at the Greater Good Science Center, which I'm really excited about. Oh, uh, I and love be... hearing that. Please tell us more about that. That's brilliant. Yeah, you know, well, it's, and if you read the book, Awe, like what I arrive at in each of these chapters is, you know, when you look at these wonders of life that awe comes out of, of music and moral beauty and, you know, our visual design and nature and big ideas and life and death there are um, pedagogical principles in each. You know, when you look at nature and you feel awe about nature, as Emerson argued, you're, you're understanding all these different principles of systems, right? Part-whole relations and collaboration amongst elements. When you think about the moral beauty that has changed your life, what you're really doing is thinking in terms of origin stories, right? Oh, this is that mentor when I was nine gave me courage and, and changed my life, right? So, so there are these deeper uh, epistemological and pedagogical principles in awe. I focus on Darwin a bit in the book. Darwin, like a lot of people, like Newton Descartes, thinking about rainbows, you know, people do their best work academically and intellectually with awe, you know, obviously. And so we got to get back to it. Um, and thanks for bringing that up. It's very funny to me because it is. It's the imagination and it's the wonder and it's the curiosity. Not like, oh, I just read this data. It's like I read this data and then I thought about this and I wondered about that. And yeah. it's like, what, what about bringing in that which enhances that capacity and awakens that capacity? Why would we right. write it off? I mean, right. it's it, it's kind of mind-blowing in a way. And you have that beautiful quote in there by Rousseau, <laughs> who's falling to his knees, like, what have we done with the Age of Enlightenment? And you're yeah. asking the same question with globalization yeah. and capitalism. 
Very much so. Thanks for drawing. I mean, that's a lofty parallel and obviously, uh, you know, over, <laughs> uh, you know, this is just a book and, and, but yeah, you know, I, there are just many ways in which if you look at our world, it needs infusions of awe. I work in healthcare and how people pass away in hospitals needs more awe. Young kids in their classrooms need more awe. Veterans, you know, I work with veterans in some research. They're courageous human beings, more courageous than I could ever be. They need more awe, you know. Our young people today thinking about spirituality, um, you know, the kind of the, the polarizing debate between the super harsh, you know, atheists and then the, the, the dogmatic intelligent design people has, has uh, denied a lot of young people like my daughters to think about their spirituality and their soul. And I think awe, awe is a good way to get us back to some of that work. And, and, and uh, I'm looking forward to see where it goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me wonder if it's what you're measuring is the, you know, metaphorical soul, <laughs> the experience <laughs> of the soul. <laughs> You know, what exactly is this? It's so universal and deeply profound. You know, one of the, well, I don't know. Do you want to comment on that before I ask you something? <laughs> well, I love that question. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm over here as like an evolutionary scientist, you know, studies emotion in a Darwinian framework. And over here is the, all the great writers who, you know, influenced me, Walt Whitman. And, you know, and I love discovering that quote relevant to your question about Walt Whitman saying, that the soul follows these beautiful laws of physiology. And if, if the soul is not in the body, where is the soul? And what he was saying is, you know, whatever your philosophical position, we have a subjective life of the soul. We, have, we feel it in sensations, in the warm chest or tears or goosebumps. And I think awe is, is right in the mix uh, of that mystery. When people feel awe, uh, you know, William James wrote about this noetic quality to it of like, you go out and you feel awe and you're like, I, I now understand what I'm, what I'm about, you know, or you feel awe when you watch somebody pass away and you're like, now I understand what life is. So it, awe does get us close to the soul and young people need to be, we shouldn't shy away from using that, that word, you know, in scientific discussion or other kinds of discussion. And yet we do. And that, and that's, we sure do. It's, it's, it's what I do think that your book does is that you're clearly a scientist, but then, you know, you're evoking. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought so when I was reading that, but, um, you know, for sure, you, you have so much art and poetry and, you know, you're evoking philosophers and, and I love how you, you know, you're not in a silo you're really kind of crossing these different disciplines. And I think that's very impactful. Mm, thank you. You know, Elizabeth, when I, um, you know, when I had the impetus to write the book, as you asked, you know, watching my brother go and in grief. And then um, I, uh, I was like, okay, I, I like started writing, you know, out of the people who inspired me. And then I marshaled all my data and I started to tell that story and I was like, man, you know, there is so much more to awe than a number or a figure or a, a little region of the brain, which is, you know, what I usually traffic in. And, and, uh, and I just had to go to the humanities and, you know, to talk to ministers or, you know, go talk to a cellist about music or, 
you know, um, visual artists, Rosalind Fisher, you know, capturing awe in the cells of her body. And it was really there, you know, just with the metaphorical languages, the images, the poetry that I felt like, ah, this is getting closer to this thing that I want to write about. So it was, it was a privilege to be forced to do that. It really was. One of the things I think perhaps that struck me the most, aside from your talking about your brother, was the state penitentiary, the San yeah, Quentin yeah. guys. And yeah. it was really, you know, I, I just loved reading that. And I could, I felt it in my entire body. I was just like, wow. Yeah. You know, you were a little bit nervous about going in there and saying, yeah. to ask them about what is awe. And yeah. then they kind of blew my mind. I don't know what yeah. your, your feeling was, but they're like, oh, yeah, ah, you know, the light in the yard, my daughter yeah. learning how to read, you yeah. know, Jesus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was it was right there. And, you know, it was, and it, correct me if I'm wrong in understanding this, but it seemed like that, you know, they were talking about this experience and you're like, oh, okay, you know, very much as you had surmised, awe is universal. And then it brought you to, you hugged Lewis at one point. Yeah, yeah. Who, who's an inmate, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, so you broke that little, that rule, right? But it was a higher yeah, rule. Right. Yeah. A higher law. Yeah. You know, when you're destabilized by grief for another part of life, you, you know, you, you go into places searching for things. And, uh, you know, my mom taught in prisons, you know, some of, I grew up in a place where some of the kids ended up in prison and I went in, I've always thought about it in the abstract and it was a top 10 set of awe experiences mm. uh, on par with being on a panel with the Dalai Lama, you know, um, and wow. the reason, you know, just the, the drama of it, you know, walking in through the gates. And then when I gave my talk, you know, there are only four or five volunteers and there are 180 guys you know, who are all big and muscular and lifting weights. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, this is, yeah, this is different. Um, and then to, um, to hear their response, I was standing on stage and I love just asking questions that, you know, may not seem like the right thing to ask. And I just like, I got to ask you guys, like, what do you feel awe about? And you gave the accounts. And I was like, there was this space in the room of, yeah, that's the phenomenon of everyday awe. It's always here. These guys are dealing with solitary confinement and crappy food and being denied the ability to touch their kids and all the inhumanities of prison. And they still find it in the light. And here I am like, you know, wondering how to find it. And it astounded me and Lewis, you know, there's such humanity in the prisons, just like there's humanity in combat or humanity when you're about to die. And, you know, Lewis uh, just astounds me. He, he writes, he creates newspapers in prisons. He protests injustice. He, he's just always trying to make things better, you know, and in spite of being in there for life. And so that hug too, you know, against the code, the correctional officers, you know, w would have chastised us, but it connected me in the in the narrative to a hug one of the last hugs of my brother and and again it was this mm, interesting way wow. of like how i keep that hug of my brother in my skin oh. and when i encounter people who really move me like lewis and my brother it's activated right mm -hmm. and that's the soul 
in some sense. That's transcendent um, and, uh, and real. So thanks for bringing that up. It really, I think every US citizen should be in checking to prison for a half day just to see what we do. Uh, it will change your mind most often about incarceration. I, I think that's a great idea and I believe that completely. You know, I, you know, just the, the whole, like, there's no us and them, you know, it's yeah. just us. Oh yeah. I mean, for some of us, you know, there's six or seven times where I could have been heading towards that in some way, if I had a different color skin and, you know, and also just to hear the real stories of trauma, you know, trauma, we have an amazing capacity. And this is one of the lessons of the book, I hope is like, Awe isn't just this thing you find at spas. In fact, I don't think people feel much <laughs> awe at spas at all. Probably at all. not. Probably yeah. not. We find it when we encounter hardship and trauma and death and you know suffering. And we're like, wow, that is so incredible that unbelievable that this would happen. How do I make sense of it? What do I do to make it better? So uh, I hope that's a lesson of the book too. Mm -hmm. Go in search of mysteries to find awe and, mm -hmm. and often hardship. Yeah. And like you said, it comes often out of hardship. It's that sort of beauty that arises that, you know, you, you experience or see in those moments. It, it makes me wonder about how that could or would be a way to impact perhaps something like the prison system or our schools. You know, awe is for everybody. You know, awe allows you to feel that you're part of something greater and it produces the sense of interdependence and we're all in it together. And, you know, wouldn't that be a good idea to be talking about and teaching? Yeah, you know, it's so striking to me that, you know, I've studied certain emotions for a couple decades. And some of our most noble emotions that are often in short supply in educational contexts or other work contexts come out of our grappling with, with trauma, hardship, suffering. So compassion, Karen Armstrong, the religious historian, like this is the singular common DNA to the great ethical spiritual traditions. Compassion is about appreciating suffering, right? Oh, that person is really suffering. I will tend to them. Awe, evolutionarily, I make the case in this book, awe is emerges as certain kinds of social mammals bond together yes, to face yes, peril, yes, like yes. cold, like food scarcity. We bond together. In, in defending ourselves against invaders or intruders. And so that tells us that, like you're saying, Elizabeth, like we need, you know, this, this emotion is ready to en ennoble us if, we, if we, we get people to contemplate it in the right context, right? Of, of not shying away from the hard stuff of life in education, but getting kids to contemplate it. So. Uh, we'll see. You know, it's a tough sell for certain American audiences. They want all good news. Um, but, <laughs> but what but is all... good news? <laughs> yeah, it is good news. It is good news. I mean, it's, it's, I, you have to, I would love to have you talk a little bit about, because I think it's not surprising, but it's also, um, it's funny. I think we need to share it <laughs> with the audience about how awe isn't really related to wealth or materialism. Yeah. <laughs> or your fancy That's new so car. That's so important though. <laughs> You know, the, and you know, when people, when I ask them, you know, and I've asked thousands of people this question, like, what gives you awe? And they kind of, they generate images and they're like, okay, I'm hopping on a plane and I'm going to the Cascade Mountains and I was ice picking my way up to a peak or whatever. 
And, you know, there is this notion or, you know, I heard about somebody on Instagram who went to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and they were in this resort. And that's awesome. You know, <laughs> and it's not uh, in point of fact, you know, and maybe it is. But in actuality, you know, nice study, nationally representative sample of participants, poorer people feel more awe on a regular basis than wealth, wealthy people. And that tells us that wealth gets in the way of all, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I think that's a very important notion to explore. But, but part of um, the lesson for me is it's another kind of acknowledgement of everyday awe, right? That there's awe and kindness of other people. There's awe in singing with people. There's awe in sharing food with someone. There's awe in contemplative practice. Uh, that often we lose sight of as we rise in class. Yeah, isn't that odd, I find? I mean, in some ways, it's almost like the wealthier you get, the less sense of a community that you experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's that's a robust finding. You know, wealthier people tend to have more space, they're more time alone, they don't have the, the uh, sense of community, they have a lot of opportunities for community. And, and that's, I think, part of the puzzle. Um, and, you know, it, it makes one worry when it's the wealthy people making decisions about should we have music programs in schools or, you know, should this be part of a hospital's budget to build in more opportunities for art or what have you. So um, it's concerning. Yeah, the idea of everyday awe it could be as simple as putting a painting up on a wall in a hospital. <laughs> I mean, please, you know, I mean... Let's do it. Yeah. No, I know. And, and, you know, I'm hopeful. You know, I was part of kind of the gratitude movement, if you will. And you go to schools and hospitals and you see little gratitude exercises. And let's hope that, you know, awe has a similar momentum. And I'm seeing it where it's like, yeah, we should, you know, I mean, gardens should be mandatory. In, the United, in California, they are working on making sure everybody has public transportation to make regional parks within 10 or 20 minutes. So there are ways, it, it, there are ways to think about awe design of making sure everybody gets a shot at some everyday awe to, uh, to enjoy its benefits. Because it's, I don't think it's that expensive. I don't think it's environmentally friendly. There's a lot of wisdom around that too, right? Mm -hmm. How people can build for all for, mm -hmm. for the citizenry. You know, it makes me think of this idea that you bring up of traditional ecological knowledge. <laughs> and why yeah. do we forget that? Or, yeah. you know, lose that capacity. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit of, about what that is. And yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the big sources of awe is nature. And, you know, we Westerners think that you know, and I chart this brief history of, you know, when they ascended Mont Blanc in 17, I forgot what it was, 58 or so, Europe went crazy for hiking. We started backpacking and there's, you know, Emerson outdoors and uh, all the great environmentalists. But in fact, indigenous cultures have had a very deep awe-based relationship to nature for millennia, 10,000 years, 20,000 years. And it is written about in terms of ecological belonging, or I like uh, Dr. Yuria Salidwin's phrase, uh, uh, she uses the phrase ecological belonging or traditional ecological knowledge. And it's very deep, which is 
the idea that, you know, your relationship to nature, nature is a system that you're part of. There are many different processes in a, a ecosystem or a part of nature that you're perceiving that are collaborating, right? That they are generating resources in this life cycle that you benefit from, that you treat with reverence. And then in fact, that you are deeply part of as a, one species among many, you know, and Dr. Salidwin's written about it, you know, just this sense of feeling kin relationality to other species and awe. When people feel awe in nature, they, that is their mind, right? They're like, oh my goodness, like I'm part of these trees. I feel them breathing. They are alive. Oh, I get it. You know, what I do is affecting the, these, these members of this ecosystem and look at it. It's all working together as Darwin saw uh, in this process of natural selection and evolution. So it is a deep idea, ecological belonging, Dr. Yuri Sliedman, or traditional ecological knowledge, Pierotti. It's a deep insight. It's a big idea of nature. And it's interesting, you know, sorry to go on about this, but as I studied Emerson, who's uh, such an awe champion, in his longer version of nature, he writes it, about it in much the same way, that the mind's best ideas come from observing and feeling nature. I, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it just feels so commonsensical in a way, and that yeah, and yeah. yet we've forgotten it. And it's but it's just I mean, we are nature, and this we are nature ecological belonging. It's like, of course, let's let's embrace it because the only way yeah. to go from embracing it is to really grow and thrive. And you know, I think in my own experience where. I feel most alive is when I actually feel connected to nature or that tree or other people. It's like, it's an incredible experience. It is. And it was fascinating to me in grief Mm. to, like you said earlier, Elizabeth, and thanks for sort of calling out those, those uh, experiences. I just kept time and time again, it was nature that was providing the ideas, the wisdom of how to handle loss that, Oh, he, his, my brother's warmth is still in the warmth of the sun. I spent a lot of time in the ocean and just the, the regularity of the waves and knowing that they're there, I was like, oh, I get it. Like things go on. There is a lot of kind of reorienting to nature right now for a lot of good reasons. And I, I hope awe is part of that. I hope so too. Um, you know, it makes me, when you were describing that, I was thinking about the study that you did with uh, Yang Bai, if I'm pronouncing yeah. it correctly, with the, yeah. you, the, the folks out at Yosemite where they were to draw yeah. a picture of themselves in relationship. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? I just love that. Yeah. I love looking at the picture. Thank you for providing Thank that you. in your book. <laughs> I know. So, you know, that really, that's all you need to see. Yeah. You know, it's so funny, Elizabeth, like across domains of awe, like nature, Emerson says, like all mean egotism vanishes. Uh, in the psychedelic world, they talk about ego death. Julian of Norwich, you know, I read a bunch of spiritual writings just to, you know, learn about mystical awe. And, you know, Julian of Norwich and her great experiences says, I am nothing, you know. <laughs> and there is a sense that awe, well, and we kept like, we would ask people about their experience of awe and they'd be like, 
well, I, I just feel like I disappear, you know? <laughs> and so the, then the challenge is, okay, how do I get that in the lab? Do I have people, I measure their sense of disappearance? Or, <laughs> and what Yang did, you know, and I'll never forget, she's like, I'm gonna go do a study. We started doing studies of all everywhere, like at the Great Wall of China, Ooh. you know, at the Sagrada Familia, you know, in mosh pits and dance raves <laughs> and just all over. And uh, Yang said, I'm gonna go do a study at Yosemite. I was like, all right, go do it. So she goes out to Yosemite with a, a bunch of assistants. They're at this outlook in the road where it's really the first time you see the El Capitan and the great rocks of Yosemite. That, and it's awe-inspiring. And so she gets people there. And then she says, this is part of a study, draw yourself. So they draw themselves. She has a nice control condition, which is Fisherman's Wharf, which is kind of fun and lighthearted. And look, sure enough, sure enough, man, you know, at Yosemite, like, they draw really small selves, <laughs> giant contacts, you know. My other favorite finding on that though is the <laughs> awe walk study we did where people go out for an awe walk once a week for eight weeks, go find awe, you know. And we asked them to take a picture of themselves. And very similarly, the picture gets smaller and it starts to drift off to the side <laughs> of the <laughs> selfie. So there is this sense that you know, thank God, man, I'm so tired of thinking about the self and it, it vanishes <laughs> during awe. And that's good news for a lot of people because self-focus is not what we're meant to do, you know, around the clock. Oh, we, we could all use it. I mean, I love how you describe it as, quote unquote, the interfering neurotic. It's like, yes, yeah. get out of the way, please. Yeah. Tired of that voice. <laughs> that's so funny. Um, you know, it's 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 funny, like, as you're describing, it, it's like it's, it's people are going out there looking at Yosemite and they're like, it's the greatest experience of my life. And I am nothing. I mean, what a wonderful <laughs> juxtaposition, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it is. It's such, that's so interesting. It's also interesting to pair that with like, now I understand the point of life and the point of life is just to disappear. You yeah. know, so yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, lots of paradoxes in the study. It's, of isn't that the best? I love it. It's like I'm disappearing and I'm nothing, but I'm a part of something even greater. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness. Maybe that's the catch. So when you were talking about reading about Julian of Norwich and so forth, it, yeah. is that what you were doing with um Because one of the questions I'm going to ask you was you did some studies with uh, Jonathan Haidt at NYU and you were reading yeah. about all of these mystics and flow yeah. states and... I was curious about what was one of the most compelling stories that you read in that in that research. You know, one of the I worked with Jonathan Haidt, you know, and we published really one of the first conceptual papers on awe in the social sciences, 2003, believe it or not. He really taught me, like, get beyond the data, go read different disciplines, traditions um, and and just look and look at what the prose is like. And, and in fact, that's what William James did in Varieties of Religious Experience, which is he, you know, he's going to give these lectures in Scotland about the religious experience with the thesis being that our sense of religion is grounded in feeling, which is a very, you know, James, Durkheim, Emerson, et cetera. And so I, while writing Awe, I not only gathered all these stories of Awe and read those, I interviewed people about Awe and those were incredible. And then, you know, I consulted, you know, the great traditions of all writing. Julian of Norwich would, was definitely of one, feels a little bit more like bliss, like she just dissolves in love in relationship to Jesus. The prelude, well, Whitman is, you know, and you can almost think of all writers, Whitman, 
you know, a lot of his writing is just like suddenly it's getting expansive and vast and he's merging and, you know, and he's feeling he's leaving the self behind and dissolving the prelude of Wordsworth. My mom taught and she gave to me big awe writing, Margaret Fuller, great awe passages. And in some ways, you know, Elizabeth, um, I, I was most moved by the people I interviewed, you know, like Yumi Kendall saying that the awe of music feels like a cashmere blanket of sound. And I was like, wow. And then Reverend Jen Bailey, you know, awe within religion is always composting. You know, it's always evolving and churning. It was stunning to read all these different accounts of, of what awe feels like out there in, in the written word. And it taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. It taught me about the, the real phenomenology of awe. Yeah, that's, I mean, I love that you crossed all these disciplines and did all these interviews to learn about this, which I think awe encompasses all of it. One of the questions that I had about that, particularly with thinking about Reverend Jen and how yeah. she describes it as, I feel, I feel the love of God. That's, yeah. that's yeah. awe. And yeah. then you talk, you have another time you're mentioning that famous statue by Bernini, the St. Teresa mm. de Avila. Yeah. And it made me wonder, because I wanted to, if you would share also this, what is the, the neurobiology, the impact of these awe experiences? And yeah. is, there, is there an increase in the love hormone, even if it's yeah. just generated through this kind of imaginative feeling-based experience? Yeah, you know, the, it's, and the reader will learn about, you know, these self, the neurophysiology of self-transcendence, which we're starting to really understand, you know, the big story right now in meditation and awe and psychedelics is the deactivation of the default mode network, big chunks of the cortex that are about the self. You got to look at the body and the, and, but the, what we don't know neurophysiologically, and I think it'll take a next wave of science is just like you said, yeah, the self disappears, but then you, you have all this oceanic sense of connectivity and merging that's gotta be in, as you rightly anticipate, regions of the brain where oxytocin is a neurotransmitter, like the periaqueductal gray, um, regions of the brain that have a sense of boundaries dissolving. And we don't know, you know, that hasn't been discovered yet. And I think it's a major shortcoming of the neurophysiological study of awe and psychedelics. But the body is really interesting. And, you know, the chills, um, well, you start with the tears of awe, which is a parasympathetic autonomic response. The parasympathetic nervous system, big branches in your body that help you connect to others. We have a finding on the vagus nerve, which connects with oxytocin. Awe elevates vagus nerve activation, which is about really merging with others. And then the goosebumps are wild. You know, they're, you know, they are in a lot of spiritual writings, kundalini, you know, uh, and the like. And and goosebumps are a distinct response when mammals merge or join with others, right? So it tells us, you know, at its core, this, this diminishing of the self and then the merging with others has neurophysiological grounding and has evolved, mm -hmm. um, which becomes interesting for those who care about evolution. Well, what does it mean though with evolution, right? It's evolved and yet then we forgot about it a little bit or did we? And then we're coming back to it, the importance of it. Yeah, well, you know, I think that, you know, how I approach it is that, you know, our mammalian, particularly social mammals, our evolution, 
built up this very basic structure of awe, which is merge with others when facing peril, forget about self-interest, uh, and explore, mm. right? Open mm-hmm. your mind mm-hmm. and figure things out. And, and, and that, you know, probably primates have and others. And then that becomes our sense of awe as an experience as we become these symbolics, you know, hominids. And then culture moves it around. You know, it just yes, turns yes. it into different things. Yes. It's like, we can take that and you can feel that when you're cheering for the Pittsburgh Steelers or, you know, <laughs> you when you're do. eating you a chocolate truffle, you know. <laughs> uh, it, and so that's this magic interplay between what at the deep structures that evolution gives us and then what culture does to it. You know, how how does it, I mean, when we're talking about the the word awe, right? I mean, you talk about it in your book about what it, the etymology of, of awe, like awesome, awful, like where there's like this taint or sprinkling of fear or horror. It's definitely not that, but you're dealing with the unknown. So it, yeah. it, it would make sense in some ways that it's a little tiny bit scary. Yeah. And about a quarter of all experiences today are have fear, deep, uh, significant fear and the feeling of threat and uncertainty, you know, but I think, you know, it's again, back to what we've been kind of a subtext of our conversation, which is that humans are really interesting, which is that our best tendencies emerge in response to threat. So, and (laughs) Shelley Taylor, an early neurophysiologist made this point that oxytocin is about binding in response to threat. So three examples, you know, compassion and suffering. We have this huge pro-social, almost spiritual response to other people's suffering. That's interesting. Um, Gratitude, I feel so reverent. I feel so much appreciation and reverence for what you've given to me. I will thank you and appreciate you. Comes out of food sharing processes, right? Oh, there's food scarcity. You give me food. I just express my deep gratitude. And then awe we bind with others, we merge with others to face perils, right? So it tells us, you know, there is this, this deep evolutionary kind of origin, if you will, to these, these tendencies uh, that help us handle the hard stuff of life. Mm-hmm. That's actually very hopeful in regard to the idea of trauma or the experience of trauma, you know, that this can come out of it and often does. Yeah, and you learn that, you know, to some extent with the prisoners, you know, that was Stacy Bear's thesis with veterans who have twice the rates of depression and anxiety because of the trauma they experience. And Stacy, who I work with, you know, his idea was like, what these people need is awe. You know, they need to get outdoors and and just get wild and face peril and, and face chaos in rat river rafting or rock climbing to get that sense of self-transcendence. Um, I think that's part of the power of psychedelics, which, you know, they are proving to be pretty effective in in dealing with trauma. And, it, and I think, as uh, I argue in the book, and others are, it's, it's awe that like, oh, there are bigger things I can be part of than just this trauma that I'm facing. Right. The diminishing of the self and the something yeah. that is greater and how important that is. And then how do we how do we promote, and I think, you know, I understand that you already are by virtue of writing this book, but yeah. promote that in our narcissistic culture, which I love that you have the so you're like, oh, but we're a little bit less narcissistic than we were, what, 10 years ago? <laughs> we're, we're doing a little bit better. <laughs> we're making progress. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, conversations like this, obviously, 
there are a lot of awe practices, right? That you can pick up in the book, like the awe walk, telling awe stories, thinking about a mentor, telling origin stories about where your sense of moral beauty came from, right? There are, there are awe practices to do. So that's encouraging that are increasingly tested by science. And then importantly, I, you know, and you raised this question earlier, Elizabeth, which is, you know, I think we need to be, whatever context you're working in, right? You need to be thinking about the role of awe in transformation. Um, I recently taught about awe and this, this guy at Kaiser Permanente who leads a lot of their grief projects and people who have lost loved ones, like I lost my brother. And in digging into the, the power of awe, he's like, I'm gonna start having awe be a central focus in grieving, right? Where are you finding awe? What was awesome about the person you lost? A second example is, you know, I've recently spoken to um, people who help design large scale housing projects and housing communities. Why not look at them through the lens of awe, right? Where are the, you know, the, the features of awe design, the access to nature, awe stories and the like. So I, I think there is a lot to do in this hard time. You know, I work with hospitals and they, they have taken a lot of awe out of the care of people let's build it back in right through simple means. So, and then we've talked about classrooms. So I think, I think it's coming. I think there's going to be good awe design yeah. uh, work to do. Yeah. I love that. It's like, we've been awe deprived and coming out of the deprivation is this yeah. rise of recognition and yeah. implementation of it through these exercises or what you're talking about with hospitals and yeah. housing complexes. And that's kind of awesome. That, that is, that's awesome. <laughs> So, you know, you, you also talk about, you know, William James and, yeah. you know, he wrote the varieties of religious experience, I guess, 1904, or it came out of his lectures, right? But yeah. like a hundred or so years ago. And, yeah. you know, you're, you're writing the book, Awe, now. And, you know, we kind of, well, it seems like psychology at least ignored him and science ignored him for a hundred years or so. And I really appreciate that you're... <laughs> bringing it back and embellishing upon it and talking about it more and saying like, hello, you know, do we have to wait 120 years to talk about this again and bring it and, and use it and, and embrace it and how beneficial it is for our humanity? Mm, thank you. Yeah, William, you know, there were certain people who really inspired me in this book in, at many levels, you know, Darwin. And, but William James probably was the central one just in, you know, his method of talking to people, getting stories, letting stories tell, reveal the phenomenon, and also his pluralism, you know, and, and it's so, you know, when he wrote Varieties of Religious Experience, he said, it's, it's the feeling of being in relation to the divine, what's primary and good in the world, no matter what, whether it's laughing gas or Hinduism. And, and I, I really found that, like, in our work, like, awe is, can come out of anything and why not surface that idea of pluralism like we're all different we all have different life histories cultures we should honor that and and also you know arrive at this notion that how i find awe in my own pluralistic and individualistic way connects me to humanity you know so james was really i'm glad you brought him up and yeah you know the study of the sublime you know 
you hear the word sublime and you think high level literary studies, you hear the word numinous, you think arcane spiritual writings, you know, but awe, awe is the same thing mm -hmm. in some ways. And it, it's, it's for everybody, as you said. Yeah, it's for everybody. I mean, we people have used the word awesome so many times. It's about time they start looking at what awe is. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to to say this because when I um, saw the movie Inside Out, you know, it's like yeah. absolutely brilliant. And I want our yeah. audience to know that you're the genius behind uh, how real that movie and the characters are and what they go through. And it's brilliant. So hmm. I, I'm hoping that you will do a part two with a character talking about or experiencing awe. There is a part two coming. Yes. Uh, and I've been talking to them about it and I push so hard on awe. And I think there, there may be some, they may, we'll see. We'll see what they come up with. <laughs> it, may, it may surface, but I, I'm not sure. Well, I sure hope so. I look forward to it. <laughs> Me too. So thank you so much. Thank you, Elizabeth. This was a great interview. It was, a, it was really a pleasure and I'm very grateful. And thank you so much. To be continued. To be continued. Take care. That was Docker Keltner. Thank you so much, Docker. You can pick up a copy of Docker's new book, Awe, wherever books are sold. And to learn more about the Greater Good Science Center, visit www.greatergood.berkeley.edu. Please come back next time on Wonderstruck, recorded on location at last summer's Embodiment Symposium in Buon Convento, Italy. I'll be talking about the relationship between sacred movement and personal empowerment through dance with performer, teacher, and Indian temple dance expert, Daniela Riva. For more information about Wonderstruck, our guests, and some really exciting upcoming events, check out wonderstruck.org. And please follow the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and subscribe on YouTube. We truly want to hear from you with your feedback, reviews, and ratings. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at Wonderstruck Pod. Wonderstruck is produced by Wonderstruck Productions, along with the teams at Bailey Newman and Free Time Media. Special thanks to Brian O'Kelly, Ileana Elefthru, Travis Reese, Juliana Keon, Topher Routh, and Tom Camuso. Thank you for listening. And remember, be open to the wonder in your own life. 